you're listening to Cinecons. In this episode, Danny Boy. host Robert J.E. Simpson. On this edition of the Cinepunk Podcast, we take a trip in time to the epoch of the teenager of gangs, drugstores and rock and roll and the cinematic career of perhaps the 50s greatest icon, Elvis Presley. You know he's gone, 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 jumping like a catfish on a pole, yeah. You know he's gone, 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 and a hip chicken game real. Yeah, no. You know he's gone, 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 hip chicken game real. You're a pretty fancy performer, ain't you, kid? Now you know what I do for an encore. Now he crowns his meteoric rise to fame with a fiery burst of dramatic power as hard-loving, hard-hitting Danny Fisher, who sang his way up from the gutters of lusty, brawling New Orleans. I would never treat to you badly Like a castaway broken toy Love a doll, I love you madly Let me be your lover boy I've stacked chairs and bottles and swept the floor up of every joint on Bourbon Street It's gotten so I look longer at a dame with clothes on and one without I'm not a hoodlum But I am a hustler I've had to be for a very simple reason Young dream my heart is filled with your dreams And I'm longing to Share them all with you There were to be many women in Danny's young life, but only two who really counted. Nellie, who knew too little about love. I've never been to a place like this before. But I want to see you again. Is this the way? Ronnie, who knew too much. Ronnie, what are you doing here with this man? How'd you get into this? How do you get out? Fighting for the upper hand, the devil-driven temper that was his pathway to destruction. Get out of here, right? Don't come back! Louisiana, baby, tells you, stay a while. Yeah! Live it up, yeah. love it up, yeah. some style. We're down in New Orleans. New Orleans. While Presley's image has passed into the popular culture, it is much parodied and tends to focus on his stage and musical turns. It's easy to forget that once upon a time, Presley courted a serious screen career before descending into a string of family-friendly musicals with tired soundtracks that blighted his 1960s image. 1958's King Creole was the fourth of Elvis Presley's dramatic appearances. The film boasts a cast including Dean Jagger, Carolyn Jones and Walter Matthau and pitched Elvis as a troubled teenager struggling between his school grades and trying to make ends meet as a busboy and nightclub singer to make up for his father's unemployment. Directed by Hollywood veteran Michael Curtis and based on Harold Robbins' novel A Stone for Danny Fisher, it is arguably the best example of Presley's screen potential. Now joining me today, uh, what's this, me and uh, Ben Simpson today. Hello. Hi, ben. 
Ah, oh, it's just you and me again. So just as a wee note, as we stick, start this recording, if I can get my sentences together, clearly I have not spoken to anyone all day. This is January 2021. Uh, we are still months into lockdown, uh, perpetual lockdown. Um, and this is our first episode of season four of our podcast. This is the first episode of the year, so it's a new season, season four. Hooray. Um, Hey, and uh, we are just days away from Elvis's birthday, which is one of the reasons why we're recording it this week. And we've got a series of, of sort of theme, loosely themed uh, pods coming up over the next three or four um, episodes, depending on, on how many we manage to get in the bag. Um, there will be a link, I promise you. We do this occasionally. There's a deliberate link in our programming, unless something comes up and we, we change it again, which does happen from time to time. But yes, so Elvis would have been this week um, 86. Wow. Which is Incredible. kind of hard to think. Yeah. Um, I mean, the man has been dead longer now than he was alive. Which, which, that, that's crazy to think. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I always like thinking about uh, that kind of thing. Like what what uh form would the artist have taken you know as times developed mm-hmm. you know what kind of style would they be planning um or would he have just stuck to his roots oh i see i i don't think he would have i think that his career had changed quite a bit um and i think like Presumably you remember the Father Ted episode where they parody the three stages of Elvis. I can't can't think of that off the top of my head, to be honest. You you basically got um the three fathers do it as a, a competition. One of them plays him as sort of nineteen fifties gold lame jacket Elvis. Mm-hmm. Um one of them plays him as uh nineteen sixty eight comeback special leather clad Elvis. And then Father Jack plays him as the aging um, burger eating, drunken, nineteen um, seventies Las Vegas Elvis. Yeah, and that I think for most people is sort of the the three basic images that we have in our heads of of, of the king. Yeah, uh, in inverted commas. Um, and so, depending on on which one of those that you have been accustomed to, I think sort of influences how you see him, and probably also how you view his career. Um, which is he for you? Uh, pr- probably, probably the first and the second one, more so the, the first, the gold, the gold jacket. <laughs> and maybe, gold. maybe, maybe a little bit of leather in there. You know? Yeah, I find that rather ironic because, like, of those first two images, like, they're, they're both outfits that he didn't wear particularly often. The gold lame, he, he did away with fairly quickly because apparently it was rather impractical. Yeah. But it has this sort of iconic status because he wears it on the cover of 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong which was a, an album he released in 1959 yeah. just after well whilst he was away in in, in, in Germany um, and the leather jacket stuff is it's the 68 comeback special which was iconic for all kinds of reasons and really really established his career um, but he wears it that once Mm. For that one show, and that's it. But those are the kind of images. But I think there's something about that 68 image that harkens back to our impressions of the 1950s and about the teenager in rebellion. Um, so it's, it's kind of, I'm always kind of curious to see where people come at from this. Yeah. 
But if you're not familiar with his music, and uh, like I know that you are slightly familiar with I'm his music, slightly familiar. Yeah, I'm slightly familiar because uh, all, all thanks to you, you you were <laughs> a, a a big Elvis um, uh, fan back in the day, from what I can remember, anyway. Still am, to be fair. I'm still very fond of, of his music. Um, still like a lot of the stuff. I mean, you asked me in the last one, we, uh, the last part about problematic characters. And yeah. There's a lot about Elvis that is problematic. Um, I'm going to skirt around that today. Um, <laughs> although it's sort of, <laughs> I feel that if we were to do something about Elvis's life, it would definitely come up there. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, like for me, he's just a, one of these sort of figures. Like I, I, I loved the voice and i like the story about him you know it's the it is the american dream it's the rags to riches um i think he's quite a complex character i i think he also musically he evolved an awful lot um there is obviously this grounding in in sort of um and, and actually in black music and gospel music um and country music as well that, that sort of comes through everything but it's very hard for us, I think, in 2021 to look back and say that this man was actually crucially important in the development of, of popular culture. And it's not just about the music. It's also about, you know, as I said, it's the teenager. Yeah. Which is a, a concept that I, I think that we've completely lost. Mm-hmm. He, he was viewed as dangerous in the 1950s. Really? And he was viewed as dangerous after that. I mean, so dangerous the FBI kept a file on him. Uh, and kept their eyes on him for many, many years. How how was he dangerous? Is that just because of the reach he had and the effect he was having on on the the uh, public? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I think that um, that any time you have a star of that potential, now I mean, we we get it occasionally with actors, but I think there's something about actors that they're they're slightly limited in a way that music transcends a lot more barriers. I think that when you're a musical star, you have a lot more potential. You can hear picked up by a lot more people and across nations and cultures in a very different way. I mean, people loved his music around the world. Yeah. You didn't even have to understand them. Same way the Beatles kind of had this appeal all over the planet. It wasn't just like in England. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just in the States. It was it was universal. So there's a bit of a potential there. Um so I, I think that that's where part of it comes from, but also like the 1950s in terms of morality is a much more closed shop. Now, we 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 happen to live in Northern Ireland. We are very aware. I think a lot of our morality in this country um, is still very heavily based in sort of those old, almost Victorian, but definitely 1950s kind of um, thinking. You know, it's it's very... Um, there's a lack of diversity. Yeah, I mean, forget this is also the era of of segregation in America. Yeah. Um, at this point, the big movements still haven't happened. They're they're building up, mm. but in music is separated. Um, if you went to a venue in the states at that point, black and white did not mix. Yeah, I, I noticed were, that from from the movie. The the only. Uh, Black people, you see, is the the lady selling uh, the crawfish. And then the black musicians in the first bar. 
yeah. or the one that he's being the, the bus boy at. Um, yeah. Which I thought That's, was kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird for us now to think that this was ever an issue. Um, although, I mean, again, I mean, I have to point this out just to our listeners who maybe are not, who, who maybe are elsewhere in the world where, you know, we've got a much more culturally diverse population. Yeah. In Northern Ireland, we're still a very much a white country. Yeah. So we've never really had to deal with this as an issue, which is sort of why it doesn't seem like it's an issue at all. Yeah. Um, but like proper segregation. And in the 1950s, yes, um, black entertainment was something that was very, very popular. Or certainly was was popular in certain places, mm-hmm. certainly in the southern states where Elvis is from, where this film is set. Um, this is set in New Orleans, King Creole, which is the film we're looking at today. Um, so that you, you definitely would have got that there. But it's also tied in with socioeconomic things. Um, you know, it tended to be viewed as a lower class. Um, and there were certain kinds of music where the sort of the the, the black population had. Um, more presence and you were allowed to be a black entertainer but even as a black entertainer you probably would have faced things like uh wage discrepancies you still would have been treated pretty badly yeah you know you could play in a bar but you couldn't actually go to that bar to have a drink yeah as a black entertainer you know as a black man or a black woman and that's what's so bizarre looking at it now Mm -hmm. um it's it's uncomfortable and what elvis did was he played black music essentially yeah and he didn't play it like there's a if you've ever get the chance to watch the chuck berry documentary he'll he'll rock and roll which was done for his 60th back in the 80s um there's a point where little richard's on talking about this and he talks about the the musician pat boone and pat boone would come along and he would do these kind of clean white covers of black music yeah basically it was strip you know would wouldn't be so raw wouldn't be so rough wouldn't be so kind of energetic it would be much more sedate much more um much more palatable to nice white families shall we say mm. it'd be like uh daniel o'donnell doing an eminem song <laughs> right that's a strange <laughs> mixture but that's what it's kind of uh, that's the best thing i can think of is just like somebody who you really wouldn't have doing it kind of trying to do this stuff yeah um and that that's what what would have happened and you know everything was kind of sanitized yeah but elvis still retained that that rawness but also his his performance style was quite physical i realize we're talking a lot about elvis before we actually get into the film as well but i think you know this probably kind of gives it some kind of uh framing yeah but his his performance style was very very physical um when he got up on stage the girls went mad for him um they screamed and he once asked about like he, he didn't understand what was going on at all and he was then told that it was the way he shook his the way he shook his leg was what they went mad for which seems so innocuous to it, us yeah that sounds like very strange to me you know like why why would i don't even think i would go nuts at anybody shaking their leg but the way is, they this did is, this this is white population who are coming in after the second world war now i'm fair enough in america it's not like it is in britain you know they're not having to face the same sort of restrictions that they did because america was largely out of it yeah you know the war didn't really come to them everything was very sanitized and it was um i don't know much more pleasant much more like twee and prim and proper yeah and they didn't move like that i mean he's basically he, he would gyrate 
and with the I mean, like he was doing what twerking did in recent years. Yeah, basically, and I mean, twerking is is a very sexualized form of dance that that has been around for a long time, but you know, coming into a much wider appreciation, um, you know. But he was basically doing that kind of thing, like pushing the the envelope out. Yeah, in the in the middle of the nineteen fifties. Um, and uh, you know, to the point where when he was on the Ed Sullivan show, they wouldn't show him from below the waist <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't want him gyrating in front of millions of people on TV. Yeah, um, that's crazy. You know, when but he, I mean, he had a sense of humor about it too. When he was on, I think it was the Milton Berle show or was the Steve Allen show, um, he was made to sing "Hound Dog" to a basset hound. Um. Like literally, he, they dressed him in a tux. They got the basset hound sitting on a pedestal, and he sang the song to that rather than kind of dancing around. Yeah. So I mean, he was kind of a, he, he became aware, and I think somewhere along the line, you know, he he gets reined in. Um, and that's very obvious for anyone who knows him as a '60s performer. Is He's that was, was that his management or whatever that did that or? Um, I think his management probably had a huge part to play with it. Colonel Tom Parker is a, a notorious individual who who basically derailed a lot of Elvis's potential. Right. Um, he stopped him from touring internationally because he himself was an illegal immigrant from Holland mm. um, and did, didn't want anyone finding out. Um, so basically he, he stopped Elvis from touring, even though there were many, many offers to go around the world to, to come to the UK and perform and things like that. He, he just was never allowed. Um but also, Tom had a, a massive influence on stuff. He took fifty percent of Elvis's earnings, which is obscene. Yeah, as that, a manager, that would be obscene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you hear people like Taylor Swift talking about some of the appalling deals that she got into with her um, her albums and the, the issues that she's had recently about that. Yeah, Elvis was was doing the same thing, you know, in 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 the fifties. I mean, it was a bad deal. It undoubtedly got him a lot of attention, and he he still was phenomenally rich. Do you think that's um, that's like an age thing? Do you think that's just somebody who's older and a lot more cunning, just taking advantage of of somebody uh, who's a bit naive? And yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, obviously, um, it worked. Yeah. And it, it, you know, he did very well out of it, but I think he he didn't know well enough to know that this was a bad deal for him, long term. Yeah. Um. He put his trust in this this older gentleman, um, to to manage what was going on, and he still had you know the wealth to buy fancy cars, to buy nice suits, to to buy a house for his mom and dad, you know, all those things that mattered to him. He came from literally he was born in a, what was known as a shotgun shack. So cold because if you fired the shotgun through the front door, it would go out the back. The, the house was that small; it was like one room. Yeah, and and like one of the poorest bits of Tupelo, Mississippi. He came from nothing. He was a truck driver before he managed to find any kind of musical success. Yeah. So I think that that rags to riches is is a big part of it too. You know, you have nothing. What do you got to lose when you got nothing? Well, that that's the what quintessential American like story is it not you know like, mm-hmm. like you gotta work to have something you know you if you have a dream you can it can be attained uh, exactly that and i think it's it's something that also comes through in, in mo- many of his films and certainly the early ones um and i think it comes through in king creole as oh, well king yeah, creole's yeah the, the last of the films that he does before he goes off to do his national service 
basically. He gets drafted a month before they start filming on this. Um, he, oh. They're not happy about it at all. He gets a deferment. Um, for, they get 60 days deferment in order for him to complete the film. So right. this is the last film that he's going to make before he goes away for two years. Was it Vietnam he went to, was it? Or? It's pre-Vietnam. Um, at this point, basically, uh, Americans had to do national service. And they're, they they basically do it for um, for two years. And obviously, again, because he's this, this raw um, potential, because he's somebody who seemed to be influential, I dare say that they deliberately drafted him in order to make an example. Right, yeah. In order to rein his, some of his excesses, in order to rein some of his popularity and have him toe the line for Uncle Sam, but also to present a good example to other people. It's like, hey, this rebel is going to do the right thing so you should do the right thing too yeah um so he went off he was he was stationed in, in germany he never saw action um he literally you know he did his did his training he, he served his time um and then he came back and he made a film about his <laughs> loosely inspired by his experiences called gi blues yes I, um, I think i've watched that back in the day yeah it's kind of fun i mean i kind of like some of I, I actually do like um some of his musical films. Some of them are, are, are quite good. Some of them have great casts. Some of them have good soundtracks. Um, but they're a bit. They, they got to a point where they became very samey. Yeah. And the soundtracks are terrible. Like there's a lot of very very insipid stuff. I think what makes his 1950s film stand out is that he's actually given a chance to act a bit, and he's given songs that are quite good. Um, although there were problems with that too, um, so yeah, so I think that's 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 kind of uh, that's, that's a lot of kind of background about it. But I mean, the first thing I guess to to kind of talk about, um, is that that kind of American dream. You said it yourself that that how working and you will get, yeah, which is kind of what his character has to do. That's yeah, what Danny does in this. Well, he he gets screwed over though. Um, at, yeah, you know, by by that, uh, b i t c h of a teacher, who just fails him for being late. You know, yeah, uh, repeat your whole year again, again, having already repeated it once. Yeah, yeah. um, because, you know, you called me honey. Riding late, the last day of school, your mouth all smeared with lipstick. How do you explain that, Mister Fisher? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know as I can explain it, Miss Pearson. You see, sir, this morning, I, I, I went in. I, well, well, I used it to go in to sweep up, see. But, uh, uh, well, 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 look, honey, I mean... Mr. Fisher, I've been instructing here for some 20 years and no one ever called me honey. Well, I believe you. He, he seems to be, like, shafted in that movie. You know, with that, well, that character, Danny, Danny mm-hmm. Fisher. Um, he, he, he definitely gets the raw end of the stick. And he seems to get taken advantage of by... A lot of people. There's a naivety, I guess, about his character in this that he's willing to go along with a lot of stuff. Yeah. That either it's to stop a rot, it's, it's to stop bad things happening. It seems to be the goal. It's to protect him, to protect his family, to protect the people he cares about. Doesn't do a very good job at it, though. No, but he's 18. I mean, he has no idea of the world, really. He has, he has a, an idea about what it's like to, you know, he knows that he has to make money in order to have a house. Yeah. To, to live he needs a bit of security um you know and and he feels things like shame it's not the shame of of you know not being out of work it's the shame of of being weak yeah 
I mean, his father strikes me as a an incredibly weak man. Yeah, he um, uh, and those like shop scenes and stuff. Mm. He just it doesn't doesn't seem to be able to stand up uh, for himself. Five years, I've been doing the same kind of work, and I filled a lot of prescriptions just like this one. Now, now, in my opinion, I don't. I don't care how long you've been filling out prescriptions. Well, what I'm telling you is that I'm running the store. Well, well, of course, sir, but see, all I'm saying is that in my opinion, the mixture that you're using Hanel, will you shut your old mouth up? Just shut your old mouth up and do things the way I say, or get out. Well, yes, of course. Now of take course. that jar and put it back on the counter where it belongs. Yes, no, I mean, if, if, if you've not seen this film, um, in, in King Creole, uh, Elvis Presley plays Danny Fisher, who's basically at the end of high school. He's already had to repeat a year um, because he didn't get the grades. And as we kind of come in, he's just about to graduate and then he's asked to repeat again. Um, his father, his mother has died several years previously. His father's in a deep depression. He lives with his dad and his uh, sister. Older sister. Yeah, older sister, yeah. And um, th- they are... Uh, basically just trying to make ends meet to, to kind of while his dad's not working Elvis is going off at night Danny Fisher's going off at night um, to work as a busboy in a club um, so he's basically spending all night in the club and then all day at school and well he, he spends all night at the club goes home gets a, uh, a kip wakes up goes back into the bar to, to work before school to clean it up and then goes to school and he's burning the candle at both ends yeah. and he's struggling yeah um and then basically there's there's a scene early on where um uh, his bosses what's the right word um the boss's mistress yeah so, that's probably a good good word for it yeah mistress um, so his, his boss is played by Walter Matthau um his uh, plays Maxi Fields and um his mistress is uh, Ronnie uh, played by Carolyn Jones who you may have recognized Ben no, maybe not. Mm, I don't think so. She keeps on popping up on little memes on social media. I find quite a lot. Carolyn Jones uh, was the original Morticia in the Adams Family. Oh right. Um, okay. So uh, she's she's very very recognisable. She's a you know, um, and it's quite good actually to see her playing something that's that's slightly in between that kind of that fetishized sex pot that we see in the Adams Family and in, in all social media memes around it since. Um, someone who supposedly has a failed, slightly failed beauty, beauty on the on the downward turn. She's a wee bit older than Elvis's, um, so uh, so she's there and she's she's got a couple of guys that she's supposed to be entertaining for the evening, um, and then Elvis is, is asked to sing, um, and that then begins a sort of discovery of Elvis's singing ability. Yeah, and a fight between um, between two between between two uh, basically bar owners. It's basically him struggling with with trying to do what's right and what's wrong, and 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 not get caught up in a world of gangsters. Yeah, but he d- is. Yeah, well, he yeah he doesn't. He he's trying to do the right thing, but um, like he he pretty much fails at every every turn, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, like he um he uh yeah he's he's working away trying to. You know, support his his family and his dad, and and keep everyone going. Mm-hmm. And then he goes right stuff this school business because I'm going to have to repeat a year. Um, I've been working and I've been struggling for the past three years trying to keep this family going. So I'm I'm going to go out and be a gangster for a day. 
rob a rob a store and then turn over a new leaf you know fine he's not even very good i mean as a gangster goes he is so um he clearly is not wanting to be part of that yeah but he's there basically just to distract everyone else's attention so he goes in and he plays his guitar as he walks around a, 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 a sort of department store yeah when everyone else does all the pilfering yeah i mean actually he's done nothing wrong no Apart from being an accomplice. Being an accomplice, but I mean, yeah. And then, uh, well, like, yeah, he does that, and then he he gets found um, uh, by these two bar owners. Uh-huh. And then uh, decides to go into straight and narrow yeah. because he's happy with his $85 uh, dollars a week pretty fucking good i'm gonna be honest 85 dollars in 1958 what what is the conversion for that for well, for it's, now? It's usually isn't it double every decade i mean he's, he's earning probably you know um probably earning about a grand a week in modern money mm, that's that's all right i suppose grand, maybe more a grand a grand a week you know that's um and then uh then decides to get in because he's not happy with his eighty-five dollars and mm-hmm. and protect his dad and rob his dad's pharmacy. Yeah, and then there's... and then commits murder later. <laughs> nothing happens uh, to him. Uh, it, it gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a the, there's a few plot holes. Just a few. So in this, the, the story that it was originally based on, um, a stone for Danny Fisher, was in that. Um, Danny's a boxer, right? Oh, well, that would that would have made more sense with the whole fighting business. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely um, elements of that film that that have um, have come through. Mm-hmm. Um, really, not the only connection to with, with Elvis and boxers. Um, director Michael Curtis had uh, previously directed a film called Kid Galahad. Um, which Elvis remade in the 1960s, and in which he plays a boxer. All right, never um, seen that. No. Um, so I mean, the, the, him and fisticuffs are definitely something that recurs. I think there's fisticuffs in many of the Elvis films. Did Elvis um, not do like judo or something like that? He was that? a black belt in karate. Yeah, uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Much um, later on than this, I think it was somebody he got into in the 60s and the 50s. I don't think he was into the the karate at that point do you think um, that was like part of it maybe his military training or something like that that he had to had to do I think it's the people he's hanging out with you know i think that he um like because of who he was because of the situation he was because of the era that it's in having to defend yourself is probably something that that would have popped up every now and then yeah anyway yeah um and i mean elvis is quite blokey in that respect and certainly from from what i know about him later on i mean the guy collected guns um like properly collected guns he, he, uh, there's a famous story which um you know, he used to watch like multiple tvs at the same time how can you do that uh, he used to have three tvs running in a bank this is the year before like multi-channels so he would have like different things running on at the same time on different different sets i guess so he could see what was going on um and apparently, whenever he used to get pissed off, he would like just shoot the TV out, um, <laughs> which happened occasionally. He was also apparently a huge fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. Okay. <laughs> which is an image I can't quite get out of my head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Elvis in his final years just happily yeah. watching Monty Python. Yeah. Um, quoting it. Quoting it. Yeah, because he. A shrubbery. <laughs> 
I, I mean, I, I can believe it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I mean, he was kind of, it's kind of blokey. Um, he has this sort of weird, sort of southern gentleman kind of like, I believe in being good to my mom and 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 women, but also at the same time, you know, he he's a little bit suspect himself. There's a conflict within that, yeah. and the screen image kind of plays on this a lot. Um, in Jailhouse Rock, which is the film he made before this, I mean, he's he's put away for murder in that film. Yeah. You know, it's an accidental murder, but there's a murder that happens. He's locked away for, and he does his time, and he kind of, you know, becomes a different person thanks to his musical ability. It's his music that actually saves him from from the underworld. Mm-hmm. Although in King Creole, I think it's his music that actually brings him into the underworld. Yes, yeah, not his fault though. No, it's uh, a guy trying Evil to make. It, <laughs> well, see, Max or Maxie. Yeah. Um, He's he's an ass, <laughs> and was it the other guy, Charlie? Is it? Yeah, Charlie. Charlie, like, um, he seems like a stand-up guy, not a gangster. He's just, I want to run my bar. I want to have a successful bar. I don't want any more fingers and any more pies. This is all yeah. I want. And Elvis, I can see, or Danny, I can see the the, uh, you know, that diamond in the rough kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, he he can do it for me, mm-hmm. and I can have a successful bargain. And right enough, he does. But then, mm-hmm. your man Max, the the mobster, because that's, that's essentially what he is. You know, he's he, a mobster. Yeah, he's he, a, he's definitely is. He's the 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 town town mobster that owns everything. Uh-huh. You know, and he he can't stand losing and. You know, obviously, Danny ends up in in the thick of uh, the this guy and his his tantrum, and and I must own everything. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it's kind of sad. Charlie, Charlie, I think's the only like decent fella who's actually looking out for uh, Danny. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In my opinion. How do you feel about his dad? Um, so his dad played by Dean Jagger. Um, in this, I think his dad's a bit of an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like he, you know, he, he, it's his way or no way, and yet he's mm-hmm. failed trying to, you know, keep every well, keep going and, and falling into this depression over his wife. Yeah, for three years, um, it's fair enough. Like you know, you, it's your your life partner that you've lost, and yeah, that would would affect you. But you know, you got to pick yourself up. And he just, I don't know, he just seems to be like a useless, a useless father figure. Got a whole day's work ahead of him between now and Miss Pearson. How do you think that's been eating at him, huh? You working in a joint like the Blue Shade? Well, one man in the family's got to have a job. What's the difference where you sweep up? It all looks the same on a garbage truck. Danny, you got Pa all wrong. Yeah, me and the world. You know, he doesn't take uh, pride in his son's ability and, and doesn't want to, like, you know, accept Danny that mm-hmm. this is what Danny wants to do. This is what he loves to do. Mm-hmm. And he's got an incredible talent at, at what he's doing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, think you're, I think you're right. I mean, and as... <laughs> as a as a chemist, 
yeah. you know, when he finally gets his job, like he still doesn't know when to to just like cut your losses. Yeah. So um, just just follow the rules and do do as you're asked, and you'll have your your job. But, but yeah, but then I don't know. Yeah, he seems to be like a bit of a spineless, spineless um, idiot. I think mm. as, as father, um, a bit naive as well. Maybe, maybe naive is 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 probably a better way. I think of looking at it because um, I think he's got very clear principles. Yeah, and ultimately, I don't think any of the principles are necessarily bad. Yeah, you know, he he does want his son to do well. Um, he, but he wants him to do well at the things he wants him to do well at. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't support. It's a typical parent attitude, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're you're right on that one. Yeah, he does. He does sort of try and um, push for the things that he wants to do, and it's in terms of his professional life when he finally gets the chance to to do a bit of work. Um, you know, which I think he only does because he realizes he's losing his kids. They're, yeah, they're becoming adults and they're getting minds of their own, and they're they're able to fend for themselves. Um, but he still is is not. I mean, his idea that you know, look, I've done this for a long time. I know that this is the right way to do it. Is is the right thing to do to say you know that this is not how this works? Yeah. But at the same time, he has had nothing for three years. Yeah. He's just got a job, and he needs to try and keep that job to keep everyone else together, and he fails to do that completely. Yeah. Um. There's a couple of uh, a couple of interesting actors who pop up in this. Um that I think is worth mentioning. Um one is Dolores Hart who plays Nellie, who's the, the, the girl that he falls for. Well, the one that he sort of falls for that's the nice girl and the Yeah, the, Danny's sort of uh moral dilemma there, isn't it? Um <laughs> the the female species. Here I'll just match you, I'm gonna take you to a hotel. Oh gosh, that's a that's a really interesting scene. Um, so he, he meets this girl when he's trying to hold the, the, the shop up when he's trying to help with the, the shop robbery and she just works there but she's just she takes a shine to him and his music playing and he asks her for a date and she says yes and then he takes her supposedly to a party inverted commas it's a party in his pants clearly um, gets a, a room at a, at a, at a motel um, shitty motel Shitty, shitty motel takes her to the room doesn't actually go into the room and they stand in the corridor and it becomes quite clear what it is he's after and she says no you coming in i don't know i've never been to a place like this before but i want to see you again is this the way why did he why did he think that was gonna I think he's a bit confused. I think that he's... I mean, he is a teenager, right? And I think this also ties in with this idea about why he was a dangerous as a, as a persona. So in a way, he's actually reflecting the fears that are rampant in, in sort of like parents and stuff at the time. Um, He has independent... Teenagers have independence. You know, they're, they're driving around cars when they're just 16. They're going off places by themselves. Parents are not there to watch them all the time. Um, there is obviously drink and drugs and everything else that comes in potentially around then at that sort of age 
and he is like obviously there there's there's the girl at the bar is quite forward maxi's girl is quite forward yeah um she is she's like demands a kiss which he has to give her before he drops which i think is so stupid where'd you pick that up (laughs) uh go on have you ever seen anybody with a few too many Where do I take? You tell the man where to take you. I'll be a good girl. If you'll give me a good morning kiss, I'll tell the man where I live. It's like, mate, just go. Go into the school. He's a teenager with raging hormones. He's probably never got laid at this point. And you've got somebody who's pretty decent, even if she smells of liquor, um, who... It's kind of like giving you a bit of encouragement. So that that I can see as a raging teenager is quite appealing in some way, or at least as a you know, the there's a hint of like, hey, you know. Um and then obviously he meets somebody who is much more suitable. Yeah. And he kind of tries the same stuff that he's learnt with her. I, I suppose I never thought of it that way. Like he thinks this is how he, because he's never been with a girl or whatever. And then yeah. he, he gets this chick. He's never ha- really had an experience with a female until um, Ronnie. And uh-huh. then the way she's acting has kind of went, is this how all girls are supposed to act? Mm-hmm. And then he tries the same thing with Nelly. He, tr- he tries it, but he tries it half-heartedly. I, feel, I don't feel he really pushes it. No. Like, it's not a scene of... It's, it's a, I mean, I find it a deeply uncomfortable scene to, to watch. Yeah. Um, but it's not aggressively uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, the door is open. They never go into the room. He doesn't force her um, up against a wall or anything else. Well, I suppose it's good that way because there is that whole, you know, consent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which, well, I think, like, he was obviously bugged by the way that uh, Ronnie was being treated at the bar, you know. Yeah. As just a uh, an object, so he seems to sort of have a gentleman sort of aspect. Maybe there, you know, her feelings are important. So, you know, should maybe see that this is okay. And obviously, she says no, it's not okay, and then they leave. Yeah, which is good to see. I think so. I think it's an important point. Yeah. That's maybe I don't know if it's lost on. I mean, I don't remember how I viewed this when I first watched it. Um, it's too long ago now. Well, any any scene with a girl in it, I just felt uncomfortable. In this film, yeah, like yeah. it. It's like it reminds me of uh, the way your man. It's a wonderful life. What do you call that fella? Is it, oh, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, <laughs> the, you know that whole, just the way he grabs them. Yeah, grabs the girls and stuff like that, and like that overly touchy you know mm. i just hate it it's it just it, it it's i don't know if it's an acting thing it's probably just an acting thing it's like it's it's so fake and 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 i don't know forceful if you know what i mean no i, th- I think that's that's probably there i think that there's a sort of an element of, of how masculinity is presented at that time in hollywood yeah in particular um i mean like obviously this is about 10 years after um it's a wonderful life yeah it's only a year before touch of evil which is another one of those films that we kind of talk about a lot yeah it's one of our reference points 
Um, so it has a very definite feel. The way that they interact has a definite feel. Um, I think you're right. I think the women in this film are treated terribly. Um, I think Ronnie Blesser has a heart, but she's been used and abused and spat out. Yeah. And is just looking for that little glimpse of love. She seems broken. Yeah. She's totally broken and broken by men. Yeah. Repeatedly broken by men. Um, just had her dreams dashed and her, her body ruined. Yeah. Um, Dolores is just a bit confused. I mean, she's the, the, the naive girl who is going to end up falling for the bad boy, which is such a stereotype. Yeah. You know, she knows he's robbing the store and she still fancies him. And she's still pushing for it, even at the end. You know, like, I'll wait for we? you. I'll, I'll you know. wait for you. I have my whole life ahead of me. Oh, gosh, you're so young. And then, I mean, even um, even Mimi, you know, Danny's sister, yeah. uh, played by Jan Shepard. I mean, Mimi, too, is, what, 21, 22, and then she's being courted by this much, much older guy in his 40s. You know, this 40s? Kind of, he looked like a, you know, 50-year-old to me. You know, if you weren't so young, I'd ask you to have that drink with me. I think I'm old enough to have a drink, Mr. Legrand. Swell, let's go. No. Not tonight. I think it would look kind of funny. Tomorrow night? I'll pick you up at nine. All right, it's a date. You know, I was wondering, is there anything in particular a man of 40 says to a girl of 20? Mm-hmm. Say you're 38. I, I mean, at that point, I'm like, I, I kind of feel, I mean, he's being okay with her. I don't see him at any point being He doesn't mistreat her. Or, yeah, he's, he's totally respectful the whole time. But it I just think, annoys me that, like, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that Hollywood is so happy to have much older men and much younger women, which is why it's kind of nice, actually, that Ronnie is an older woman yeah. who's got this thing for, for, for Danny. Yeah. Um, the cougar. Well, that's it. She's a cougar. Yeah. Um, and it's not a it's not a representation that we often see on screen. Um, although, you know, she's an ill-fated cougar. Um, a broken cougar. <laughs> a broken cougar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I, I, I get that the women scenes are uncomfortable um, there's also a depiction of, of um, mental illness there's a couple of depictions of mental illness within this film Yeah, you've, you've obviously you've got the deep depression that Dean Jagger's character that Danny's father Mr. Fisher has um, which is you can see that he's traumatised by the by the grief um, but there's also the the, the thug the, the kid um, uh, Jack Greenwich, uh, dummy, which, I mean, I I, I find just his name n- offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I get it's the fifties. Yeah. Um, it doesn't it, it, it doesn't age well that you know that that whole thing. No, you've you've got basically if anyone has again hasn't seen it, you've got this this character who is part of the the gang of yous, um, but he, it has. It's not that he can't speak, and it's not that he can't hear, but he can't speak well. He is essentially mute. Yeah. Um. So there's some sort of learning difficulties. Yeah, but he seems to be like just going along with mm-hmm. these other two assholes. I think that you don't maybe get a chance to. I mean, obviously, if you've got some sort of impediment. Yeah. Um. He does save you, Danny's life at the end, end of the movie, it, though. Yeah. He's a he hero, does. but he, he returns a favor. Yeah, essentially, because 
Danny has has looked out for him from right from the start. Yeah. He sees that he's not getting a fair deal from the rest of the gang. Yeah. We got ninety five dollars and it's only to begin. Pretty good. Yeah. Ah! Oh now come on, Dummy. Come on. Shut up now. You ought to be glad you got that. How much you given? You got thirty. What are you worried about? I asked you a question. How much did you give him? I gave him five bucks. He's a dummy. What does he need money for? Five bucks. Here you go, kid. Come on, give me. If he lays a hand on you or tries to take it back, you tell me, okay? You understand? But he sees that he's not being given money because they're assuming that because he can't speak, he hasn't got the sense to count. Yeah. Which clearly, I mean, he looks at the money whenever they're doing the divvy mm. and he can tell that he hasn't, you know, he can see he's annoyed that he hasn't been given the, the same share that everyone else has. Yeah. Even though he's doing the same work. <laughs> I love that 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 scene there. Um, I don't know if you picked up on that. Um, he's like, well, how much did he get? And he's like, yeah, he got five bucks. And then he goes, what? And then he takes takes um, the other guy's money and takes uh-huh. um, the the other other guy's money mm-hmm. and gives a lot of it to him and then keeps the rest <laughs> and walks off and then goes meet, meets the girl he, he's sort of asserting his dominance or something or yeah yeah there's like a weird it was like an alpha what? alpha male pack kind of thing there's going a, on there we, Real conflict in Danny's character throughout the film. I think that he he at one point. I mean, this is probably the Elvis story. Really, is that at one stage he is supremely confident and capable and knows right from wrong and makes good decisions and is clearly in control. Yeah. And then he is a child. He is infantilized. He is incapable of of making a smart move, and he just wants to be mothered. Yeah. So I think that that's sort of runs throughout the film. Yeah, it's rather strange. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, you, there's a lot of conflict. It's like you're trying to be a man, but you're you're not. You're 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 a child kind of thing. Um, that happens the whole way. Is that not being a teenager though? Even even today, I mean, I suppose you and I are both a little bit too old now to be teenagers. But yes. you know, like 10, 20 years ago, as teenagers, I mean, is it still not a bit like that? Uh, I don't know. Like if you think if you think about the guys you hung around with, you know, the guys and the girls you hung around with, as well as probably some of our own behaviour, there is a, a lot of trying to find our way in the world. A lot of kind of. Um, you want to be an adult, but at the same time, society doesn't treat you like an adult. No. Your folks don't treat you like an adult. No. Adults don't treat you like adults, even now. No, that's true. You know? (laughs) Nearly 40, and my gosh, people still treat me like a kid. Yeah. Um, So, like, I I think that in some respects, that conflict that goes on is, is perfectly normal, and it's nice to see it to see a character that actually is not all one thing on screen mm, I suppose I'm going to talk you around to this one I could tell at the start of this you weren't so keen but we find some, some good stuff in this film um, I also want to mention uh, Vic Morrow who plays Shark who's the, the thug, the lead thug Yes. Um, do you know much about Vic? No, no not a thing 
he, he I mean he he's I think he's fairly competent in this so he looks a lot older than than a teenager oh is he not older I think he probably is like because um sure he uh Danny beats up his brother and then his brother goes and gets yeah. him good point um yeah he's only a few years older than Elvis was yeah um but uh Vic is Vic's place in cinematic history now he was mostly a TV actor um worked away for years but he was on the Twilight Zone movie um in 1981 which you may be aware of and it was Vic who uh was killed on set with the two Vietnamese kids he was killed um, he was killed he was decapitated by a helicopter oh my god whilst filming scenes for John Landis uh, for the Twilight Zone movie um it was an incident which hugely changed the way that Hollywood works in terms of child labor um and in terms of safety protocols on set um but yeah he he was literally carrying two kids uh, across a pond um whilst this, uh, explosions were going off behind him in a Vietnam scene and um the kids were there they shouldn't have been working at that point in night um and the the helicopter was knocked off course by an explosion and uh it crashed and unfortunately killed the three of them oh my god it's horrific and you can see footage of it um online as well and it's it's not no thanks uh not into snuff uh no no i mean it's it's not it's not as graphic as you might think in terms of the footage that's that's available but it's still not pleasant to watch yeah what happened it was released very early on after the case because it was a big big there was a big trial about it as well um we may talk about that at some point i feel it's something will come up in a conversation about steven spielberg or john landis in the future um but yeah so that's that's vic morrow who I have to be honest, I only kind of am ever really aware of in terms of that, his end. Never really consciously watched what he's done. Yeah. Um, well, he seemed like a, a capable, capable fella. Yeah, you know. very, I think. Um, Dolores Hart, who played Nelly, I think it's always worth mentioning this as well. Uh, Dolores had been in Loving You with Elvis, Elvis Elvis' second film. Right. Um, and basically she did such a good job they brought her back in for this one uh, but Dolores actually turned her back on the industry completely and became a nun really? yeah she wow. went took up she, she, she didn't have much of a career beyond this uh, before she decided to pack it all in what do you uh, so think um, sparked that? some controversy in the not particularly um, she was I think she was quite religious anyway um but uh, she apparently it's when she made um, she made uh, Francis of Assisi in Rome and met the Pope and uh, that apparently was the thing that sort of turned her that, that kind of convinced her that, that what she really needed to be doing was, was being religious and not being a film actress yeah serving the Lord mm-hmm. um, so she her screen career is quite short wow um, she only was in movies for another couple of years after this one um decided that that was the way she wanted to go. I always find it interesting you kind of read up the bios of some of the people who are involved. Yeah. What's your name? Nellie. What time you get through work? Why? Well, I thought I might meet you. What do you think I am? I'd like to find out. 
there's a couple of things I think we, we probably should talk about, seeing this is Elvis. Yeah. And uh, we, we've actually talked, I suppose we talked quite a lot about him specifically at the start. Um, but I think we have to mention his physicality in this, in terms of as a performer. Yeah, he's fairly, fairly physical. Uh, oh, do you, are you talking about fight scenes? Are you talking about... The, well, I mean, let's talk about the fight scenes first of all. Let's let's talk about his actual acting chops in this, right? Because, I mean, you've not seen a lot of Elvis films, or you don't remember having watched too many of them. I imagine I vaguely remember um, the the jailhouse one, and I think I've seen the one where he comes back from the army, or he's in the army. I often remind you know sort of remember watching a lot of the musicals he does in the sixties, which are you know they're okay. They're, they're perfectly enjoyable spending of 90 minutes. You know, he, they're all right. It's, a lot of them involve beaches. Most of them involve him singing a bit. There's usually some pretty girls in bikinis. Hula uh, dresses. The adolescent male in me is, is still gets a fair bit out of those, you know. Um, uh. Sometimes there's there's some, some good comedy. Um, you got people like Angela Lansbury and Vincent Price pop up from time to time. And that, that always, you know, piques my interest for a bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's not really challenged, mm. and he says himself. He, he said himself that when he looked back over his films, King Creole was the one that he was most fond of. Yeah, um, because he felt it was actually gave him a bit of a challenge. Um, to be fair, he'd done three films before this. Um, Love Me Tender, which he's sort of a, he's not the main character in it. Um, he's sort of an additional uh, the, the kind of in this western film then he did Loving You which he never watched um, after I think the first time because his mum and dad appear in it as extras and his mum died um, not too long after and he just found it too painful apparently oh dear um, Jailhouse Rock he never saw because his co-star in that uh, was killed in an automobile accident um, days after finishing filming oh so possibly the most iconic Elvis film and it wasn't a film that he ever felt he was able to, to view um, but King Creole is, is well I, I'm interested to see what is, I, I mean as a non-biased non-Elvis fan what you what you feel of him in it as a, as a performer um, as an actor as an actor, like he's all right. I don't, I don't think his acting is incredibly amazing. Like mm. it's this sort of deadpan facial expression, and and mm. like he seems very sad all of the time. Mm. There doesn't seem to be any like joy or or happiness in in this film for him. Uh, mm. Even I don't know. Even whenever he's with the the you know the girls or anything like that, he's not laughing or smiling. He's just very sad and you know dead deadpan kind of facial mm. expressions. Now that there's something. Else. What's the matter, Danny? Nothing. Did you speak to Father Franklin yet? I stopped by this morning. He's a wonderful man. He's known me ever since I was a little girl. He was so happy I finally found someone I was serious about. He can't wait to meet you. He's there now if you... I can't, Nellie. I wouldn't know what to say to him. 
That's why I had to see you. Um, the whole the whole movie. So, in in short, in regards to showing emotion, I don't think he's that great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, you know, physical scenes uh, where you know the fights and that. Fights are okay. Um, some of the the big punches he throws, they do look quite convincing. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole body lunging for for a punch <laughs> to a guy's jaw. You know, flattening them. Some, some of the critics did say that they, they they felt that the fight scenes were the best thing in it. You know, that they yeah. they really liked that. Yeah. Um, it probably helps that Michael Curtis, the director, had done a lot of Errol Flynn movies. Like he did uh, Robin Hood and things like that way back in the thirties. Yeah. So you know he was a director who he was used to the sort of physical <laughs> as- aspect and and kind of knew what he was looking for then. Yeah, I think so, and I think that comes across yeah. reasonably well. Yeah. Um, I like the way it's lit. You know, I I like a lot of the look of this film. Um, I quite like that kind of gritty, black and white noirish feel. Yeah. Like it does feel like a film noir. It, it is it is a complete set that's been, you know, put together, isn't it? There's a couple um, of times whenever he chucks people up against the wall and you can see the wall <laughs> shake. shake and 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 bend underneath the Yeah. Like the the first time that he he, he smacks your um your mom pulls a knife on him and then uh-huh. you do the one thing that he he does the one thing you're not meant to do whenever somebody pulls a knife on you, and as he engages them, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> he's quick enough to <laughs> knock the knife out of him and then hold the guy up against the wall. Okay, what's the beef? They call me Shark. This is Sal, and that's Dummy. I... All right. Now you beat up my brother in school today, and I believe in an eye for an eye. <laughs> Okay, okay. Go for the knife. I'll bash his brains. But he, whenever he's holding them up, you can see the set bending under the pressure. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a bit of a mix. It was uh, shot in Paramount Studios in LA, right? Uh, but they also do shoot on location in New Orleans. All oh, right, okay. So, like, some of those streets are real streets. So it has that. I mean, that, but that's that's typical of any production. I mean, you do a bit of location work. Um, just for an authentic kind of vibe for some of the the you know the things, and then you, you you do most of your interiors would be done in a studio. Yeah. Um, even some of the exteriors occasionally are done on on location. Um, are done in studio in the the back lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally at this time, you know, the Hollywood filmmaking is it tends to be interior. You do it in a studio. You can control all the lights. You can control the set to make sure it looks exactly the way that you want it to. You know, you're in total control on location. There's a element of the wild and unpredictability about it. Yeah, Phys- physically in the fight scenes, I think he did. He did all right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know the the whole love aspect. Um, acting wise, you know, when he's kissing girls and stuff like that, just seems to be a bit. I don't know. Well, I find it a. My interpretation of it is, is it's it it's a bit forceful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a, I, I yeah, as I said before, the whole Jimmy Stewart thing, it just seems that that style of acting, you know, it's 
yeah I, I mean i'm with you on that one i think that there i think quite possibly there is definitely a, a, a style or a way that it's done at that time yeah um but i don't think it holds up well nowadays like um no you would you would do it differently yeah um you know but i, I mean I, I think that there's something about that naivety that that possibly is meant to be in the character or that he brought to it um for me works reasonably well now i know he's i mean for me he's not I think what I see in him is is a bit of promise. I see someone that the camera quite likes. Yeah. I see someone that's able to do it and not be terrible. I mean, he's not terrible. Like, no, he's not. He's he's not the worst thing I've seen uh, on screen. Not the worst thing you've seen in in Cinepunk. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I've seen some like, bad things, and he's definitely not that bad. I mean, I reckon had he had he had you know a little bit more encouragement and time uh, and been able to do the lessons he wanted to do, he maybe could have done um, some decent films. Uh, I mean, he was restricted in terms of his choices. There's a point where they kind of were likening him to to sort of uh, Marlon Brando, and he wanted to do other kinds of films. There's a composer, Lieber and Stoller, who wrote a number of his his sort of catchy tunes. Uh-huh. Um, at one point, we're trying to get him to do another film, um, "Walk on the Wild Side," based on a on a novel, and um, it would have been a kind of gritty, gritty film for him to do. But his manager was just like, "No," and then they got really pissed off that anybody from outside this very closely controlled environment was able to have any influence on his choices. Yeah, which is a shame. I mean, the same thing happened in the seventies. There was a an attempt to get him to do um, the then latest remake of a star is born it's just been redone with wasn't lady gaga and um bradley cooper most recently all right yeah but there's a version in the 70s of barbara streisand and elvis was down to do it but again other people felt that you know he should be in this little box so he didn't get the chance to flex his, his chops that's a bit of a shame you know there's a whole other career he could have had yeah and I wonder, I is that partly the reason why he ended up the way he did? Yeah. You know, Undoubtedly, he, he got stuck on a contract in Vegas uh, and a manager who basically wanted to keep him there. And bleed him dry. Yeah, he, his, he was easy money. For, for his own uh, mm-hmm. game. Exactly that. Yeah, it, it, You know, you stick him in Vegas, all you do is you do a couple of performances a day, every single day, you're in a hotel, that's it. Um... There's Seems no a tour. horrible, horrible way to to live, you know. I, I mean, I think it killed him ultimately. I think it was great for him at the start. I think you know, but over time, he just got very, very set, stuck in a rut. Yeah. Um, but mentioning that and mentioning his his sort of performance style, I mean, his his singing, dancing performance. <laughs> Yeah, right, yeah. They I know you got feelings about this. Well, the, I have feelings about this. The strange dancing um or or movement on stage. How would you describe that to somebody who's listening who's never watched an Elvis? Film? He looks like a zombie that has a case of the tremors. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I always think of when I watch him? I, I think of him like uh like a like a thunderbird. I think he moves like, like a, a puppet. Yeah, but the 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 hands are sort of you know sort of perpendicular to the body. Yeah. The wrists are hanging down. And it's just I don't get it. I don't get why 
so I, like i really struggle to identify like what this particular style is i think it's him being uncomfortable and reined in you reckon we know he can dance we know we can we know he can perform because like his whole image up to this point like the thing that got him attention was how much he moved was his gyrations was his and you see none of that in this you, you see a tiny bit tiny 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 bit but i mean also it's the style of music he's, he's obviously he's a nightclub crooner essentially at this he's not performing in front of a live audience in the way that you know like work on a stage yeah um jailhouse rock there's whole choreographed numbers like the jailhouse rock number itself is a choreographed music video essentially and he does some proper dancing in that yeah and he's allowed to swing his hips yeah um I don't know if you've ever seen any of the footage from the documentaries of him in the 70s. No. Like, he's fucking, he's including karate moves and everything in those. Yeah. Like, he's properly working stage. The 68 comeback special, again, you know, he's moving a fair bit in this choreography within it. Yeah. I think it's just whenever they stick him on, they don't know what to do with him. And so they just have him sitting, standing there. Yeah. And that's all he can do. It just—it's so. And I suppose like he—he he wants to move about and perform, but he's not let to do that. I think so. I and mean, I, I think it's kind of symbolic because he's about to be restrained by Uncle Sam. Yeah. For two years, and at this point, like he is literally not allowed to move around. He's being controlled by everybody within this film. You know, his father's trying to control him. His managers are trying to control him. The women are trying to control him. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And he's not allowed to, to perform as he wants to. Although, I think you also see some real joy in the performances he does because in the band behind him, when he's playing in the nightclub, yeah, um, are his actual band. All right, okay. So, cool. like, the original guys who performed with him whenever he got his record deal, the Sun Records, in 1954, uh, Scotty Moore on guitar and Bill Black on bass, uh-huh. they're in the band. And then DJ Fontana's the drummer who came along a little bit later, while he, but still I was with Sun. Like, that's his band. That's his group. That's the guys that, that made it together, that broke out and, and sort of changed everything. Yeah. And there's points where you can kind of see him like, looking at them while he's performing. And I think there's a... You can that's, see not the a the camera, <clears throat> that's not a recorded performance of what was on screen, no. That's... Cause no, it's, it's, it's mimed, yeah. Yeah. They, they I, I can tell it. because, like, I was looking at, like, obviously me being a musician, and yeah. I, I'm looking at his hand going, that's not the right chord, <laughs> you know? Um, but, I, I yeah. He's uh, playing an acoustic guitar, and it's, like, perfectly projecting... And he's singing, and it's perfectly projecting over yeah. a, a live band, you know. Yeah, no, they they recorded that um, slightly beforehand. Um, so the music's done, and then it's played back, and then obviously they're miming to it. Yeah. Um, although Elvis's way of recording was he liked to record as live. Yeah. So he would record like 50, 50, track, 50, 50 takes of a track just to get it sounding the way he wanted it to. Yeah. Whereas now, like, you do your each a bit separate a lot of the time and bring them together. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, like the, you can do it a number of different ways. Um, there's a lot of people who, who, who kind of piecemeal it now. Um, well, that's be- sort of become the industry standard. Um, you know, you, you, would, you would record everything to a click. The sort of... Beatles, everybody in a room, you know, old school mm-hmm. way of doing things. It, you don't see that as much 
which is a shame because you sort of lose a, a, a bit of the that natural like y- you can tell when everything's in a clinical clinically studio recorded environment that it, and it was just something about it that loses that that wee bit of glue energy yeah yeah mm. um what do you think of the music in this it's not my style um, um like I, I obviously you know i can appreciate it yeah um but you know I, some I mean, of it's a bit argue, cheesy, I suppose, or, or you know. Well, the high school song is ridiculously cheesy, but then I find all those kind of like, um, <laughs> uh, you know, like oh, the school's great kind of songs, bizarre. Yeah, yeah. National anthems are bizarre. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's um, like for me, I think this is quite different from a lot of his other stuff. Um, I've always loved this soundtrack personally just because I think it is so different from his other stuff because it's got those influences of jazz and sort of particularly that New Orleans I do li- I do like that New Orleansy, you know kind of sound to it um, but then there's a, a lot of like you know I don't know like a rock and roll you uh-huh. know standard as well yeah yeah to be fair there are and then a bit of um, barbershop too <laughs> well the jordanaires <laughs> who are just like they're always like they, they they were his backing group for such a long time yeah um yeah no i think that's i think that's fair enough um it's sort of and it is a nice mix of you know a couple of different takes on you know music um mm-hmm. Or, or genres, I suppose, but what you would say there, you know, bit of barbershop, bit of, bit of rock and roll, blues, uh, New Orleans, you know, second line kind of jazz thing. You know, it's a bit of yeah, bit of everything. Yeah. It's a nice mix, but not it's not, en- not your bag, <laughs> not entirely my bag. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't harsh about it. <laughs> Yeah. Let's wait to see what we've got for you coming up. Oh God! <laughs> oh dear! I've, I've got I've got some notions for stuff that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. All right. Um, okay. Yeah, it'd, it'd be fine with it. It's, it's grand. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in this before we we kind of wrap today's today's session up? Yeah, no, I think um, I think it sort of covered everything. I wanted to like other other than the you know uh, plot holes and things that that are in in the movie um you know especially at the end the, the way it's the way it's cut at the end mm. and or yeah. or you know the basically the last 5 minutes of the movie everything just don't, seems don't to spoil that for anyone yeah <laughs> everything just seems to go at a turbo speed yeah you know it's like you know he's He's essentially in a coma for two days out of it, uh-huh. and you you see him close his eyes and then open them and then close his eyes and open them and then it's another day. He's yeah. in a different t-shirt and you know, it, and then your your man Maxie doesn't know where where they are, but then he but he does. Then he appears with um, dummy. You know, I think I think you say there's 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 
the plot holes are plenty. Yeah. That, like, I, I find that happens a lot in films of that era where, I find that happens today, is that the last act is, you know, for a two-hour film. It was fairly need... slow moving, the whole film, and then just at the end, it's like, fuck, how do, how do we finish this? Let's fire everything at once. And, I don't know, it, the, yeah, the ending's just, I don't know. Uneven? Yeah, it kind of annoys me. Even the encore that he plays, you know, at the end. I didn't think oh, that yeah, was a great yeah. song. Um, it's not one of my favorites. Obviously, they they narratively um, obviously they had to you know get him sing King Creole because that's the name of the movie. You know, King King Creole, Cre- <laughs> King Creole, Creole or whatever. King Creole, I like that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I know I kind of kind of hear him whenever he's singing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> harsh. Harsh. Uh, I'm not. I'm not fond of. There's a couple of songs in this that I would have um, lifted the the needle off the the vinyl. Yeah. Um, and skipped through more than I would have let them play, which doesn't give you records. I don't recommend doing that. Much easier on CD. Um, skip. And I, I kind of I hadn't realized until rewatching it why it is that last song is played, and it's a hark back to because it was one of uh, Ronnie's favorites. Because Ronnie does a little bit of it. I was like, oh, right, okay. Uh, is that what that was about? Yeah. See, he's, that, he's that was lost on me because I... Uh, it switched off, I did. Yeah, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't pay attention to what she was singing whenever she was trying to get him to stay in the, yeah. the apartment. I used to be a singer, you know. Yes, I did. Let the stars fade and fall. And I won't care at all as long as I have you. No, that's that's him basically paying tribute to her. That's it's him kind of like doing something for her. Yeah. You know. Um so I mean like bits and pieces kinda make sense, I suppose. Um Would you I mean, would you recommend it to people? Would you watch would you watch another Elvis film having watched this? Do I have a choice? <laughs> well, you, you have a choice. There's always a choice, Ben. There's not a choice. <laughs> if the master well, deems managed to skip some of these, you know, if the master <laughs> deems it that that we have to do it, then we have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the only one who's actually watched every film that we've covered has been me. <laughs> there, you get to there, skip out occasionally. Right. Rachel gets to skip out. I can't. <laughs> yeah, you can. I won't. <laughs> um, yeah, well, well, I I've only what skipped out on <laughs> one or two. Uh, certainly within the pods, yeah. We, we we've got our other events and stuff. You know, we don't always we don't always offer everything, but um, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I suppose uh, yes. Like, for for a bit of history. Mm. Like as a time capsule or whatever of of what the man used to be and and the promise that he was showing at the time, yeah, go watch it. Um, did you not agree with that? I'm just surprised hearing that. Expect <laughs> you like never ever watch that film again. Well, I, um, I'm not. I'm. I don't appreciate it for what what it is. You know. Mm. Uh, <sighs> I mean, I suppose the thing that I would emphasize for people who don't get it, who don't understand it, but who do have an, want to have an appreciation of, of the film history is that 
I mean, he was. Um, we're, we're. I think we're kind of used now to the idea that singers occasionally make films. Yeah, I suppose. But yeah, they don't always manage to make multiple films. I mean, Michael Jackson they, made a film. They don't make um, necessarily good films. Good films, no. Um, Just because you can sing doesn't mean you can act. And he, yeah, he he kind of can act a little bit, but it's not developed. Yeah, you know, it's like Eminem and Eight Mile. Oh, that's like, terrible. I, I, I mean, I think actually Eminem has a bit of potential there, but it's not developed enough. I don't think he's been given the chance to like properly work on whatever it is he's got. But I think that's that's maybe partly to do with the director. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of things at play. You know, like none of these none of these personalities come into it with with total control. I mean, the Beatles did a couple of films. You know. Um, like a lot of acts will do a film as a as a marketing exercise, if nothing else, it sells an album, and that relationship between the album and the film, the soundtrack album and the film, like was something that they wanted to tap into. Yeah, well, even if it's um, a bad bad film, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity unless you murder someone. The the, the film sold the album. The album sold the film. Um, and obviously it was quids in. Yeah. Um, but I mean, these were also hugely popular in their day. You know, amongst certainly a generation of, of younger people, yeah, maybe not with the critics who really didn't care for this hip swinging upstart teenager, you know, yeah. But I, I think there was a definitely a, a market there. Um, well, look, I'm glad you watched it, I'm glad you gave it the time. I won't subject you to another Elvis film for a bit, yay. Although I am quite tempted that maybe at some point we might look at one of the um, the documentary films. He made in the seventies. No, I can watch a documentary. I don't yeah, mind I watching documentaries. Documentary kind of uh, maybe maybe intriguing to see some, it, some of that stuff. Is um, it is it a documentary or like is it like a, a there's no acting right right so it's an actual <laughs> legitimate it's, it's documentary performance and and behind the scenes kind of stuff. All right, okay. I think yeah, I think it'd be useful to kind of sit and compare. Um, and also then look at everything else that's going on around. But look, for the next few episodes, for those of you who listen to these things in order that we suggest, which it's probably very few of you, um, we're going to have some sort of loose theming going on. So the next one that you're going to listen to um, is our, we're, we're looking at another major rock star. We're going to have a look at David Bowie and we're, we're covering Labyrinth. Yes. Thanks to the myth, the, the strange way that we actually record these things, we recorded it months ago, and it's been sitting on our shelf for a while. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I already know what Ben thinks about it. Yes, but you don't. <laughs> so you've got that to look forward to next. Uh, and Rachel will be back on with us for that one because we recorded that right at the start of lockdown. Yeah, um, before she went off on uh, maternity. That's it. So we're doing that, and then well. We may have some more musical stuff coming up after that as well, but we'll see how things go over the next few weeks. There will be a, a loose theme, which I will try and uh, elucidate on our website, because we've got a website as well, if you haven't checked it out, cinepunk.com. When I can, I now try and provide some uh, program notes for each of the episodes. Um, so hopefully you've enjoyed the pod. If you haven't, or you've got any feedback at all, talk to us on socials. We're on uh, Instagram as cinepunkfilm. We're on Twitter and Facebook as cinepunked. Uh, we've got our website obviously we've got our podcast as well um if you've liked this episode and just stumbled upon it think about subscribing liking um leave us reviews on itunes all those kind of fun things uh and interact with us as best we can 2021 looks like it's gonna be another interesting year it does um, indeed another challenge creatively so we're gonna keep on trying to do content for you as long as you guys are, are listening out there uh, and engaging with what we're doing 
So that's the plan. Um, thank you, Ben, for for subjecting yourself to this today. No, that's that's fine. You're you're welcome as always, Robert. <laughs> he has to say that. <laughs> um. So yeah. So hopefully you've enjoyed that too. I I look. I recommend going out and giving it a watch. I think it's one of the better ones. Um. Because it's made by a proper filmmaker, it's got some some decent music in there, and this the cast is amazing. To be fair, I mean, this is one of Walter Matthau's first films. Uh, he's literally done about four films at this point. It's a very different Matthau from the one that that you recognise in all the, the the comedy films that he did later on. Um, do hit the subscribe button. Do give us a like on social media. Do um, follow and tell your friends as well. And heck, throw some suggestions our way, and uh, maybe we'll consider doing them on an upcoming pod. Till the next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye.